You're going to love this. Just love it. Broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and Queso in Cottage Grove. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff, and Redding, our best to you there in Redding, KFOI, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, you probably recognize my voice right now. Whenever he and Desi are out, I am in Angie Cuero. I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Can we take a moment? Based on the new regulations pushed through by Jeff Sessions, we're now going to take a breath, have our prayers, and confess our sins before we continue. Yeah, I'm really proud of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Apparently, he finally grasped that religious-based hate crimes are truly a blot on America, that Jewish and Muslim Americans are harassed, beaten, hounded, killed, anyone mistaken for Muslim American, harassed, beaten, hounded, even killed. He's finally going to see that their religious liberties are protected. He says, as it says in The Hill today, the cultural climate in this country, and in the West more generally, has become less hospitable to people of faith in recent years. And as a result, many Americans have felt their freedom to practice their faith has been under attack. And at last, you won't have to be a Christian for the Department DOJ to care what happens to you. Haha, <laughs> just funnin'. Yeah, he and the DOJ have announced the formation of a religious liberty task force, but it's not Sikhs or Muslims or Jewish people that they're particularly worried about. You know, the ones who get love notes from the KKK tossed on their doorstep? No, that's not what he's talking about. No, it's the bakers who are forced to bake gay cakes. It's the pharmacists who are forced to, terrors upon horrors, actually do their job dispensing medications without passing moral judgment on the customers. The Hill reports his direct words. Sessions said on Monday the task force will, quote, ensure all Justice Department components are upholding the guidance in the cases they bring and defend, the arguments they make in court, the policies and regulations they adopt, and how we conduct our operations. We've seen nuns ordered to buy contraceptives. Oh, yes, and deliver them, too. Mm-hmm. We've seen U.S. senators as judicial and executive branch nominees about dogma. Right. 
we just were concerned about how they might rule on things, you know, whether they would bring religion to a non-religious position. But I digress, even though the Constitution explicitly forbids a religious test for public office. Yeah, they don't do that on the Trump side. We've all seen the ordeal faced so bravely by Jack Phillips, he said, referring to the Colorado baker who took his case to the Supreme Court after he was found to have violated the state's anti-discrimination laws for refusing to make a cake for a same-sex weapon. Had he made that cake, the Holy Gates would have been closed to him. Sessions said the guidance he issued in October lays out 20 fundamental principles for the executive branch to follow, including the principles that free exercise means a right to act or to abstain from acting, not having to do your job you're getting paid for, and that the government shouldn't impugn people's motives or belief. In short, we have not only the freedom to worship, but the right to exercise our faith. The Constitution's protections don't end at the parish parking lot, nor can our freedoms be confined to our basements, he said, according to his prepared remarks. If you want some statistics, in 2016, hate crimes motivated by religious bias accounted for 21.3% of reported hate crimes. That's over 1,500 reported victims. And a breakdown of the offenses showed that about 54% were anti-Jewish, 24% were anti-Islamic, 4.1% were anti-Catholic. So guess which are the ones that Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions and the DOJ have announced they are worried about today? Yeah. Let's get into the nitty-gritty here. On the phone with me is Annie Laurie Gaylor, co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Annie, let me guess. I'm assuming that the putting together of this task force didn't exactly knock your socks off. You're used to these things, aren't you? Yes, and of course, the, the Trump administration has been piling on, and um, they have pretty much um, sold their soul, if there was one, to the, <laughs> the religious right and the Christian nationalists. You know, I have to wonder, when they make a task force like this, there doesn't seem to be an egregious breaking of the law, per se. There doesn't seem anything that, that those of us who are concerned about freedom from religion can attack, say, in court or get a lawyer. But the signaling has already started. When they're making references to, you know, the poor baker who had to bake a cake for someone, fulfilling, you know, having, having to pay for contraceptives, even if you don't believe in women's rights, it does indicate the direction that they would like to see this go. Is any of that actionable yet? Uh, no, they're pretty much just, as you say, signaling what they're going to be doing. And for example, when um, Sessions announced this uh, a Liberty Summit this, this 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 morning, that he would have the Archbishop, a Catholic Archbishop, that he would have the plaintiff in the Masterpiece Cake case, who didn't want to bake a cake for a gay couple, to come to this gathering, this uh, the Justices uh, Religious Liberty Summit. Of course, you can see that the whole thing is is uh, twerped toward the the religious right and the Christian nationalists, and that they want to turn the concept of religious freedom and religious liberty into a weapon, to weaponize it so that people can, uh, under the umbrella of religious freedom, take away other people's rights or can be above the law themselves and not follow the Civil Rights Act and similar legislation if they claim that it offends their religion. It's a very dangerous avenue to go down. You would think that 
the idea of who is a protected minority, I mean, you hear that all the time. When something goes to a court, there's a specific group of protected minorities. You can't discriminate on basis of age. You can't discriminate on the basis of, you know, physical attributes, whether you be handicapped or not. It, this whole idea of whether LGBTQ are protected and the other groups that have been at the center of the of the cake baking and have been at the center of whether you have to dispense contraceptives when you're asked to, are those officially recognized as falling under protected groups? The Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1963, you might know that uh, they thought that they were going to um, sabotage it by putting the word sex in it because they thought they would never it would never pass when it was to make a protected class of race, um, ethnic origin, color of skin. And they put in race and, and then they thought sex was going to sabotage and it wouldn't pass. Well, it did pass. But of course, in 1963, LGBTQ rights was not high on anybody's consciousness or their list of protected classes. So, in fact, um, gay rights, uh, your sexual orientation is not a protected class federally, Mm -hmm. but it is at many state and municipal levels, such as in Colorado, where the Masterpiece Cake case came out of. And uh, so this uh, cake baker had, in fact, violated local civil rights uh, legislation. The Supreme Court on very narrow grounds said, uh, threw it back to the lower courts and said that one of the members of the local civil rights um, ordinance committee had shown hostility to the, the gay baker's religion. Mm-hmm. It was a real weird decision, very narrow. Unfortunately, it probably won't be interpreted narrowly by many people who want to discriminate in the future. But um, so it, it, there's still a great uh, tension. There's a whole bunch of cases winding their way through the courts on this matter. But for example, in Madison, Wisconsin, where the Freedom from Religion Foundation is based, we've got tens, I don't even know how many, 75 protected classes, including non-religious. And we were the first community, the City Council of Madison, Wisconsin was the first in the nation about three years ago to clarify that non-religion is also a protected class along with religion. That is freedom from religion? Is that, I was, I was going to ask you anyway about whether freedom from religion is something that is respected by the courts across the country. Well, it, uh, I, the Civil Rights Act does include religion uh, of 1963, and then, uh, uh, but there's been concern that when it said religion and it doesn't say non-religion, that it could be misinterpreted interpreted to not include atheists and agnostics, for example. And so when we had our own special uh, Madison Civil Rights Act that talked about religion being a protected class, one of the older persons thought we should make sure to clarify that non-religion is also a protected class. And we would like to see that being adopted at other uh, local and state levels. We don't uh, think it will be adopted in the in the federal level at this point. And we would argue that under religion, that means you have freedom of conscience. And so if you have freedom of conscience, you have the right to reject religion. Mm -hmm. You have the right to accept or reject it. It, The First Amendment does encompass believers and non-believers. But there's there's a lot of um, pushback on that. And this ordinance in Madison, Wisconsin, clarified that, in fact, non-religion is a protected class. So we were quite thrilled. 
You know, I, it's easy to paint with too broad a brush. People think, oh, well, if you're on one of the coasts, you're a flaming liberal. And if you're in the middle of, quote unquote, flyover country, then you're a crazed conservative. Okay, neither of those things is true. But I do wonder about Freedom From Religion Foundation being in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, you know, when we when we do hear about Christian activists who believe that they're oppressed and believe that other religions are pushing them out and making it, you know, this less of an America you know, you do hear a lot of that emanating from some of the Midwest. Tell me about having your group based there and how you're treated by your own community. We are treated pretty well here in Madison, Wisconsin. We are having our 40th anniversary year as a national group. We started off in 70, 1976, 42 years ago, as a local and regional group. And I think they're pretty used to us and we're accepted. And in fact, um, statistics show that 52% of Madison citizens identify as not having a religion, which is about twice as high as the national average of well, about 24%. Yeah, that's, that's surprising. So maybe we can take a little credit, or maybe <laughs> we just have found a very good home for ourselves. It was just intuitive. <laughs> is there anything that you would like to touch about what's happening with a potential appointment to the Supreme Court? We're looking at Kavanaugh. We're looking at some you know, stalling plans on behalf of the Democrats. Has he given you any concern about where he would fall on religious issues? Oh, there's no question that um, Kavanaugh is would be a disaster for the Supreme Court. He would be a disaster for separation of church and state. He would be a disaster for women's reproductive rights. He is pro-religious privilege, this misreading of religious freedom to say that if you're part of the majority or you have a sincerely held religious belief that the law doesn't have to apply to you or you can force your religion on other people. Um, he, uh, One of the things that distressed me the most about him was this situation with the 17-year-old detained immigrant at the end of the year, uh, who got into the clutches of, of uh, detention and was pregnant and was getting more and more pregnant, and they wouldn't let her have her abortion. And this became a court case, and he was one of the um, justices on the appeals court who voted on that case. And he uh, felt that she should, it was not a, an undue burden for her to have to sit and wait while somebody, uh, while the government decided that there would be a guardian who would make these decisions for her. And she was getting close to the cutoff of legal abortion. So that that's extreme. That I think should just anybody should be dismayed. She was basically imprisoned and had an unwanted pregnancy and uh, did not speak English. And there was a very firm decision in her favor. Um, but he was a dissenter and uh, he would be another Catholic on an already heavily Catholic court. There is no religious test for public office, but there's no reason why we have to keep five or six Catholics on a nine-member court, and he is a, a good Catholic, and he's um, talked about his priest when he was uh, inter uh, introduced to the country by Trump and talked about how important religion was to him. And we would like to see plurality. We would like pluralism on our court. We would like to see diversity, diverse views, and this would be uh, retaining this lopsided Catholic majority, he would be replacing Kennedy, who is a Catholic. Um, and of course, there's so many other reasons to oppose him on separation of church and state grounds. He's very pro-school voucher schemes to throw money at religious schools. He sends his children to Catholic schools. Um, he has evinced 
great hostility not only to separation of church and state, but to plaintiffs in state church cases. He has spoken, um, he's, you know, used language like, um, you know, that we want an Orwellian world and we want to cleanse public schools of private religious speech and we're hostile to religion in any form. And that's very unfortunate. Um, and in this, uh, he wrote this brief in a case that is not controversial. That was a landmark 2000 case by the Supreme Court, Santa Fe versus Doe. And it involved um, Protestant or Presbyterian Baptist type of prayers being inflicted on an entire school district in Texas during football games. And when students and parents complained, they started asking the students to vote on it and having the students blast these prayers at everybody over the football games. Well, the plaintiffs in those cases were Mormon and Catholic. They were not atheists. Mm -hmm. They disliked having a form of religion that they didn't subscribe to forced on them when they wanted to enjoy their football games. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. And, you know, it shouldn't be a controversial decision. It's um, there are are more than um, 50 years as a firm Supreme Court precedent against religious uh, prayers in public schools. So he has written this brief and it's a very revealing one. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's always important to underline whenever we get the chance that you can be a man and be a feminist. You can be a religious person and still believe in freedom from religion. You know, you can be opposed to abortion and still support the right to abortion. So I'm really glad you bring that up. There are people who are devout, devoutly religious, and they understand what the Constitution is about, and they understand how we're all supposed to live together without inflicting religion on each other. So let me ask you out of curiosity before I let you go, do you have a sense with those who support the Freedom from Religion Foundation, do you have a sense of whether you have people who are religiously devout supporting you? Just curious. Well, we certainly have worked with, we've had plaintiffs who are religious, and we've had worked with Catholic, Lutheran, United Church of Christ, Jewish, Buddhist. Uh, we had one lawsuit with 22 plaintiffs, and we had a diverse number of plaintiffs against a Ten Commandments monument on a public park. Um, we have worked with some religious parents in a case we just won before the Ninth Circuit against very um, doctrinaire religious prayers at school board meetings. So we are happy to make coalitions with religious people. We think that everyone should protect the First Amendment because it protects all of us. And if the government can take sides, uh, who's to say it won't take sides against your religion next? Um, when people are in the majority, they feel a little more comfortable, but they have to realize that that could change. So, uh, you know, there are certainly many religious people who support separation of church and state. The Freedom from Religion Foundation itself is got two purposes. We work for separation of church and state, and we represent non-believers. Mm-hmm. So we we band together. We're a group that espouses the non-beliefs of our membership. Who we like to joke. We don't care what you call yourself, atheist, agnostic, skeptic. We all just believe in the same gods. But we do make <laughs> friends with people of of diverse backgrounds. I think when we work for separation of church and state. However. It is what brings out the most hostility, the death threats, the crank calls, far more than our advocacy of atheism and agnosticism. And I find that a little disturbing because we were first among nations to separate religion from government, to adopt a godless constitution, to say 
that, uh, you know, sovereignty is in we the people. Mm-hmm. This should be something, an all-American principle that everyone should be proud of. And it should be uniting us and not dividing us that we have a godless constitution. And I really appreciate your time. Annie Laurie Gaylor, she is with the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I so respect your work and I so appreciate your work. And thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Let's switch around to the good news, shall we? More and better news, this time from the Supreme Court. Despite GOP manipulation of the seats, the justices are apparently still capable of defying their overlords. A lawsuit from 2015 pitted a group of young Americans against the U.S., demanding climate justice. Now, here's part of the timeline from Our Children's Trust, which is instrumental to the lawsuit, along with the group Earth Guardians. Youth filed their constitutional climate lawsuit, Juliana versus the U.S., against the U.S. government in 2015. Their complaint asserts that through the government's affirmative actions that cause climate change, it has violated the youngest generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property, as well as failed to protect essential public trust resources. I love this. I love this. Because you know what? When we're all dead, they're going to be breathing the air. When they're dead, their kids are going to be breathing the air and drinking the water. And wow, can't argue with standing here. Very proud of them for doing this. So that was started in public uh, 2015. Going back to their website, the fossil fuel industry initially intervened in the case's defendants joining the U.S. government in trying to have the case dismissed. Their motions were denied in April 2016, November 2016, again in June 2017. Eventually, the fossil fuel industry defendants were released by a judge from the case. Now, there are a lot of interim steps. I won't give you all of them. You can follow that whole timeline at ourchildrenstrust.org. But here's the payoff. July 20th, 2018, a three-judge Ninth Circuit panel kicked aside the Trump administration's objections to the case. July 28th, just last week, the admin lost another ruling. And the newest one came down Monday morning. And since the Children's Trust has worked so hard on this, I will let their press release tell the story. Quote, today, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of the 21 youth plaintiffs in Juliana versus the United States. The constitutional climate lawsuit filed against the federal government. The court denied the Trump administration's application for stay, preserving the U.S. District Court's trial start date of October 29, 2018. But wait, there's more. The court also decided the government's premature request to review the case before the district court hears all of the facts that support the youth claims at trial. The Supreme Court's decision follows the July 20th decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Ninth Circuit, also in favor of the youth. Now, this is really cool. The court stated the breadth of the U.S. Try that again, huh? Here we go. The breadth of the youth's claims is striking. The court ordered the district court to take the federal government concerns into account, assessing the burdens of discovery and trial, as well as the desirability of a prompt ruling on the government's pending dispositive motions. This is an excellent outcome. There's more news coming up. We're going to bring Dave Johnson on. He's going to tear apart some of the assumptions underneath the coverage of class and socialism and markets and capitalism. He is my go-to guy on all things economic. We'll be hearing from him later. And so much more news. Stick around for that. I'm Angie Cuero. This is The Bradcast. (laughs)
Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero. Lots more news on tap. I'll tell you, they're not even pretending anymore in the White House that they, you know, agree with the Constitution, that they have any fear of looking like Nazis. They just don't care anymore. They don't care anymore. Mike Pence now says the press should be free until until they fail to maintain the decorum due at the White House. Go to Raw Story for the write-up on this one. But it's when they banned CNN reporter Caitlin Collins from what they call a spray, from what they call, that's what they call one of the opportunities for the press to question the president. And uh, yeah, they wouldn't let her in there because she asked questions that upset the Donald. Don't upset the Donald. From Raw Story, VP Mike Pence on Sunday defended the White House's decision to ban her. During a pool spray last week, Collins pressed Trump about whether he's disappointed that his former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, released the audio tape we've all been talking about, proving that he knew about a hush payment for a Playboy model. Then she was told her invitation to the president's next event had been revoked. So talking to, yes, say it with me, Fox News, Mike Pence says he backs the White House's ban. Let me say, this administration believes in freedom of the press. Ooh, you can hear the asterisks from here, Pence told Maria Bartiromo. President Trump and our entire administration have provided extraordinary access to the media. The president answers so many questions, so many questions. He would have capitalized it if he could. I can assure you we'll continue to do that. But he added a caveat. Maintaining the decorum that's due at the White House is an issue. I'm very confident with any network. This will ensure the access of the American people to this administration. This is incredible progress. That's terrifying. This will ensure the access of the American people to this administration, I'm sure. Okay, deconstruction. The decorum, i.e. don't ask the wrong questions and don't make the Donald mad, will ensure the access of the American people to this administration. Is it just me or are we talking implied threat there? This is incredible progress indeed. If you don't behave, you don't get to conduct the people's business at the people's house. Bartiromo noted that Collins was working as a pool reporter for all the networks who were back at Raw Story for this, including Fox News, when she was banned from the White House event. I just remain very confident, Pence replied. Look at the relationship between any White House and press corps. Always, you know, it's always healthy and robust and occasionally represents disagreements. This is not a disagreement. This is a quashing of press freedoms until they adhere to how you want them to behave, Pence. I'm confident they'll be able to work out the relationship in a positive way. Every network and news organization will continue to have access. We stand for the freedom of the press in this White House until you behave in a way that we don't like your behaving. Yeah. Can I take a moment to note the passing of Ron Dellums? Ron Dellums died at age 82 he was a congressman for Northern California. He was the mayor of Oakland. 
particularly notable is the fact that he was elected to service in the U.S. Congress as a proud socialist. He caucused as a Dem. He was registered as a Dem. But he took no shame at all in saying that his guiding principles were, in fact, socialist. It's too bad that we've lost so much ground since then. We can't really seem or haven't been able to. I'm not going to be negative. Up to now, we have not been terribly good about getting more socialists in power. Black socialists, my goodness, even less so. He was so good on so much. He was talking to reporters once at his campaign headquarters because at the time he was opposing the Vietnam War. I'm a bit too young to remember that. A lot of you are probably way too young to remember that. But of course, it was a very contentious time. And being an officer trying to get into office and opposing the Vietnam War could be painted as practically un-American. And what Ron Dellum said was, if it's radical to oppose the insanity and cruelty of the Vietnam War, if it's radical to oppose racism and sexism and all those other forms of oppression, if it's radical to want to alleviate poverty, hunger, disease, homelessness, and other forms of human misery, then I'm proud to be called a radical. Ron Dellums, who died at age 82. I don't often use the Daily Mail as a source, but because they, in turn, are collating information from a variety of other news sources, Kansas City Star, KCTV, I'm going to go to them for this particular Story, I haven't seen this covered a lot. I hope I'm just missing it because I'd like to see it out there. Bank of America. Remember how Bank of America conducted themselves during the mortgage crisis, before, during, and after? Yeah, they're not exactly a great corporate citizen. But apparently, they're passing judgment on an American-born family who's been here for 20 years 20-plus years, American-born citizen Josh Collins and his family discovered his bank account was frozen by B of A. Why? B of A told Collins it was because he hadn't confirmed his citizenship status after receiving a questionnaire asking if he held U.S. or dual citizenship. 20 years banking with B of A, which makes me question either his choices or his knowledge of how they conduct themselves. But yeah, 20 years with B of A. It took him two days and having to personally go to the bank before he could get his account unfrozen. What does B of A say in response to all this? All clients will eventually receive that questionnaire. I don't have to tell you that's chilling. You probably know that's chilling, don't you? Ron Dellums mentioned sexism in that quote I gave you from the Vietnam years. Still an issue. Washington Post. There's a judge who has now been sanctioned for saying, in response to a particular judicial move in a courtroom, quote, we didn't let girls do it in the old days. Higher court has told him this was inappropriate. He'd been, this is Judge Lynn Hughes, who says, by the way, that he understands discrimination because he has the name Lynn. He has a woman's name, whatever. That's his, that's how he justifies this. But he'd been presiding over a criminal case over an, with an adoption agency owner who was charged with fraud. A female federal prosecutor delivered stacks of new documents during four pretrial conferences in early 2017. Now, that was after the discovery date that he set, and the judge was not impressed. You're supposed to know what you're doing, he said to her. 
what else is out there you misplaced or didn't think was relevant, so you didn't check it at all. Then he said something that eventually became the basis of the rebuke. Quote, it was a lot simpler when you guys wore dark suits, white shirts, and navy ties. We didn't let girls do it in the old days. He said something about how he was addressing someone in the court audience. Complete lie. Anyway, thanks to the Washington Post for that story, for covering that. So yeah, still out there. Did you catch the story from the Working Families Party? In the case of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which they didn't endorse, they did not endorse her campaign. And instead, they had endorsed Joe Crowley. Very unusual move on behalf of Dan Cantor, who's with WFP, taking to the Daily News, New York Daily News, to talk about why he's still on their ballot as the WFP nominee. And it's just an interesting situation when, in good faith, a party puts forward a candidate and gets caught in the snarl of regulations and recalcitrance when, in fact, they want to endorse someone else. I won't go into all the details. I just want to point it to you because it's an interesting way to see how the system works and can, in fact, work against a party who's trying to get their own candidate after they change their mind onto a ballot. So check it out at the New York Daily News. Vote against Joe Crowley in November. And that is their endorsement to vote against him. I referenced earlier this hour an effort on behalf of Democrats to keep Brett Kavanaugh off the Supreme Court. They are outnumbered, of course, but this is being covered by the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm proud to see it, happy to see it. Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to fill the crucial U.S. Supreme Court seat is headed toward a Senate confirmation role, but how fast it gets there will be determined by whether outnumbered Democrats succeed in a tactic that could postpone the decision until ding, 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 after the midterm elections. Those elections could maintain Republican control of the Senate, virtually guaranteeing confirmation of Kavanaugh. But if Democrats succeed in both putting off a vote and prevailing in the next election, they could put that nomination in trouble. So here's the strategy. California's Dianne Feinstein, Senator, put this together, is to demand to see every document that crossed his desk while he served as President George W. Bush's staff secretary, every document from 2003 to 2006. Republicans are pushing back, of course. Feinstein asks, what are Republicans in the White House trying to hide? The Judiciary Committee will consider President Trump's nomination of Kavanaugh to succeed Retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy, she says the importance of the records in that evaluation is shown by his statements that as staff secretary, quote, he worked closely with the president and with the senior staff and was called on Bush to provide advice on a full range of subjects. So why shouldn't they need to see his paperwork? Democrats are playing a delay game, said Senator John Cornyn of Texas, having never played such a delay game himself. I just inserted that. It's not in the story. Republicans say the only records that are relevant to the qualifications are the ruling he issued in 12 years as an appeals court judge and maybe documents he wrote as a White House lawyer from 2001 to 2003, but not the voluminous paperwork that the Democrats are going after. I'd like to see it succeed. And it's nice to see them actually trying. TSA 
This one is very unsettling, very unsettling. We know there are watch lists of American citizens. We know there are do not fly lists. We know that there's at least some demonstrated effort on the part of the government when they're asked about it to demonstrate why these people belong on these lists. However, that has been blown wide open. Marshals overseeing this program are protesting. Let's go to the coverage from NPR. Some Americans have been trailed and closely monitored by undercover air marshals as they traveled the U.S. as part of a previously undisclosed program called Quiet Skies. The scary bit of this? These are people who haven't done anything wrong. They're not on any lists. They're people who are traveling. The Globe reported on this. Thousands of unsuspecting Americans have been subjected to targeted airport and in-flight surveillance carried out by small teams of armed undercover air marshals. The marshals observe the targets and keep notes, documenting whether they change clothes or shave while traveling, change direction while moving through the airport. Have you done that? Oh, yeah. The donut shop is in the other queue. And you turn around and go to the donut shop. Bingo. You are a suspect. Do you sweat? Do you tremble? Do you blink rapidly during the flight? Do you use your phone? Do you talk to other travelers or, heavens forfend, use the bathroom? TSA is defending this. Observation is something all TSA officers are trained in. So when you go to a checkpoint in the, checkpoint in the airport, you, me, or everyone, our behavior is being observed. But the same TSA spokes said, Passengers do not need to be on terror watch list or suspected of any crime to be monitored. Wow. The Globe reports that a flight attendant and a federal law enforcement officer are among those who've been flagged for surveillance under the program to the frustration of air marshals who felt they were wasting their time. So the people who are charged with doing this recognize not only that it's wrong, but it's a time waster. Time is money. Our money. All right, enough of that. And uh, something we're going to hear about later with uh, Dave Johnson. We're going to be talking about all things tax and all things capitalist and all things socialist. But this is from the New York Times. The Trump administration is considering bypassing Congress to grant a $100 billion tax cut. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I'm seeing this. Mainly to the wealthy a legally tenuous maneuver that would cut capital gains taxation and fulfill a long-held ambition of many investors and conservatives. Dave will address this in our next segment. And that's a look at what's going on out there in the world. we got more to cover here. Stick around. I'm Angie Coiro. This is The Broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. 
Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cairo. Dave Johnson has been a regular guest of mine for years on Indeep. You've also heard him here on the broadcast. He worked for a long time as senior fellow for the Campaign for America's Future. That's where I first got acquainted with his work. He covered trade, labor, and economic issues there. He's blogging at Seeing the Forest. We need to poke him to do more of that because it's some excellent writing going on there. Seeing the Forest is his um, his website. Some stories out there just shriek, get Dave's take on this. And over the last two days, there were four of those. So I figured it's time to scratch the Dave Johnson itch. That sounds weird, but hi, Dave. All right. I'm the itch scratcher. Right. <laughs> Dave, the itch scratcher. Let's talk first about the first thing I contacted you about was a Josh Barrow item in Business Insider. Capitalist Elizabeth Warren has the right antidote to socialism and Trumpism. I always like to do disclosure. You're welcome to do the same. I don't think socialism needs an antidote, but I just wanted to get you on the headline before we dive into the article itself. Thoughts on the headline? Okay, just the headline? Yeah. yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> Okay, that's a good lord good. from Dave Johnson. The article's pretty good, but the headline, it, good lord. It is, and we have to keep in mind the people who write the headlines, they're not always the same people who write the articles. But let me let me start this off. Senator Elizabeth Warren's recent remark that she is a capitalist to my bones is being treated as some kind of news, even though it's consistent with policies and rhetoric she's espoused for her entire career. He goes on to say, if you want to make markets work well, obviously you are in favor of markets and capitalism. You followed Elizabeth Warren for a long time. I guess I never saw anything to the contrary that she is anti-capitalist. But check me if I'm wrong on this. I think this is part of the success of branding from the right, where if you try to put any curbs whatsoever on unbridled capitalism, you are ergo socialist. I, I guess that, that's the strangest mix-up of things. Uh, capitalism and markets are different things, by the way different okay you can have markets without being a capitalist system yeah here's a problem with this the words capitalism and socialism the the meaning of them have become so confused by i don't know how many decades of propaganda capitalism is a system of by and for people with money socialism is a system of by and for society at large we the people all right, I'm going to so, poke back so, at you, Dave. Hang on just a second. I'm just going to poke back at you here because if we say capitalism, by definition, is for people with money, I think that it's arguable to say that capitalism refers to the flow of money, but it is not necessarily for only people of money. Well, sure. Capitalism means that capital invests, private capital invests, makes the decisions on where to invest in our economy, and then reaps the benefits of that, okay, in the, mm -hmm. the return on investment, like a bridge, okay? 
if a bridge is built but with private money, then we have to pay to use the bridge. And the owners of the bridge then reap what we pay. And they take a lot of risk, sure, and all, all of the calculations of how much to charge. But people with enough money to then cross the bridge pay that money, whatever they're charging. And people without enough money don't get to cross the bridge. And the system then ends up enriching the people who built the bridge. Society, if we the people get together, pool our resources and build a bridge, we all get to use the bridge, and the benefits of the use of the bridge flow to all of us. But those are both absolutist ideas that that only people with a lot of money then do the investment. And it, it just gets so once you start getting into what we might call reality, which you know Pompera, but we could try. Uh, so much of these core positions erode so fast. Money, for example, money itself is a creation of government. So this idea that capitalists have money was, and that the government needs to stay out of it, it's right there, okay? And you can't have the money change hands without some regulatory arbitrator watching over this. And of course, that's government too. So it all kind of dissolves into this puff of theory real quick. But the core ideas that, that the capital makes the decisions versus the society makes the decisions is the distinction. And then we're talking about degrees of that distinction here. Well, okay, Dave, so that takes me into the next paragraph. There are two broad theoretical approaches that can lead you to the same left-leaning policy platform. You can start from free markets and layer on government interventions as necessary to make those markets stable, functional, and fair. Or you can start from central planning and introduce market features where the government cannot officially allocate capital from on high. But which direction you approach from, it's to your advantage to place markets front and center, as Warren does, because you'll have to explain how you'll make those markets work as well. Okay, central planning, where'd that come from? You see, that's the problem with these labels and decades of propaganda that are put on them. And once again, markets and capitalism are, are separate things. You can certainly have markets under socialism because, I mean, you're still going to go, you're going to go buy some food. You know, you're going you're gonna to trade with your neighbors and all of those sorts of things. The difference here is uh, if you want to go to the core of this, it's about what they call the ownership of the means of production. If, mm -hmm. if you own the factory, all these people might work in the factory and everything, but you get the benefit of everything that's made in that factory. They just get a wage. That, that's kind of the core of the Marxist analysis of these things. The investment gets the return. The worker gets labor, a wage, if they're lucky. And remember that the core of, uh, of the Southern system was that those workers weren't getting wages. We've got to go back to, to an understanding that, that all of that is kind of meaningless and propagandized, that we actually need to just take a look at what might work. And both Warren and Bernie in that paragraph and in Josh's points out, you know, come to the same policy analysis. And then look at what we call the the capitalist side, the business side of this. They're not actually preaching actual capitalism either. They're preaching that the people now who have all the money should 
get all of the returns and not open up a system where more people can actually get in on that. Okay. I mean, look at the results in our economy. I once put out an article that talked about 400 people were getting half of the, we're getting as much income as half of all Americans. That was, uh, that was some years ago. Okay. If you look at it now, six people. So it's gone from 400 to six, I think, something like that, or six families getting as much income and wealth as half of the country, something along those lines. What's happening is it's concentrating among fewer and fewer, and those fewer and fewer are rigging the system to benefit themselves. And that's not capitalism either. See, this this is why I think this is important, because you and I are having what sounds like a theoretical, philosophical, academic discussion. And that is not true. These understandings of what a market is, what capitalism is, what's being labeled socialism, this all matters when we take it to the ballot box, because you're talking about either challenging or perpetuating the current structure of power. Right. And the current structure of power is not capitalist. It's not socialist. It's not anything but a system where the people who currently hold the wealth and power rig the system to benefit themselves, okay? Jacobin Mag has an article about that even libertarians admit Medicare for all would save billions of dollars. A new study from a libertarian think tank admits Medicare for all would save $300 billion. Couple questions can come out of that, but let me cut to the big one in terms of what impact this will have on where politicians go in the next election. Will we see from both right and left possibly more support for Medicare for All? Because this is a right-leaning organization, noting that Medicare for All is a good thing for all. No. Here's what's going on. The Koch-funded Mercatus Institute came out with a study of of Medicare for All. And the study is, uh, uh, like they say, there's no co-pays Everything's paid for, all kinds of stuff in it, you know, and they're trying to say this is Bernie's plan. What the study says only is that it will cost, well, it says inside something, but it says it will cost $32 trillion to fund this. Okay, that's what mm-hmm. that's the headline of their study. Inside, it does point out, oh, and by the way, that's over 10 years. They don't say that either. Uh, It does point out inside in a paragraph that that actually saves money, period. Okay, so a whole lot of organizations jumped on that and got ahead of it because what it means – oh, and Paul Ryan's out there. Look, it's going to cost $32 trillion. You know, it's a big money, a big number to scare people with. That's what this is. But And Paul Ryan's out there, $32 trillion. That's what Democrats want to do to you. You know, all this stuff, all right? Here's a fact. That's $300 billion less than we spend now over 10 years. Uh So if you went to Medicare for all instead of this bizarre hodgepodge system that is really bad for most people, you save $300 billion a year before you even start working on things. So Bernie's plan saves $300 billion a year. Here's one of the things, though. If If you say that all people and what they spend on health care, it saves $300 billion. If you say it saves on taxpayer money, et cetera, that, that whole phrase they like to use, that's a little different. What we have now shifts the costs onto regular people, mostly down the ladder of income. And this is why I love talking to you. You just 
cut yeah. through stuff. You and I'm I. I'm going to move you on to. If we yes. spend, let's say we spend 500 a month on health care, okay? And right. the government pitches in some or not. We're still spending that money. But if the government pays for all of it, if in the aggregate it then costs less for everybody, they say it's government spending, it's bad, you see? What it is, is mm -hmm. if we had Medicare for all, overall health care costs of all of us would drop dramatically, starting with $300 billion a year. They're saying, that's government spending, though, so it's bad. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. It's not you and me spending it anymore. It's government money, which means that the Cokes and other large income people would be paying more taxes for it. We would God pay, forbid. You and I would pay a lot less. They would pay a little bit more. All right. Well, let's go to one of the latest opportunities for the ultra-rich to save a little money on taxes. Opportunities. I didn't know about this until you pointed me to it. Oh, Opportunity that that zones. That ozones. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. What's an ozone and how does this work? All right. <laughs> this is a good one. All right. And it's a Forbes. I sent you a Forbes article that talks about this as a good thing. Where yes. if, if you put money into, was it housing? And mm -hmm. such in poor areas, then you don't have to pay any taxes. Basically. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that this way, uh, savvy investors get to apply their money instead of taxpayer money. The basic argument there is this social versus capital argument there. They're saying that a few private people with a lot of money can make better decisions than society. That's the basic argument we get a lot in our current political situation where they say government's bad, government doesn't do anything right, we should leave it up to the private sector to make these decisions. Well, the private sector means that 400 people that became 200 people that became six people who are making these decisions. Jeff Bezos, they're saying, makes better decisions about how we should shop than if society made these decisions. Uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg makes better decisions about how we should see things from our friends and family than, uh, than the old way would be that government would regulate this public utility, et cetera. Well, if, well in fact, let, let's go to one of the neat little... Go ahead. One of these neat little aspects of this, and this is going to a, a partner article also in Forbes from Janet Novak. It says that the funds have remarkable freedom to invest in just about anything from real estate to tech startups, as long as it's located in ozone and isn't a business Congress considers a vice. No casinos, liquor stores, or massage parlors. I, I could see where this could work if you honestly were putting money into helping neighborhoods in a way that is regulated by the government, if it were dollar for dollar, still a deeply flawed plan, but not as egregious as it is now. Well, yeah, not as egregious as now, possibly, because government's blocked from doing anything. But mm -hmm. it says that, well, first of all, it's really just a big tax dodge, obviously. Uh, mm -hmm. Why not have a system where the prime beneficiaries from our system pay back, although we could really get into an argument about if taxes fund government, but that's a whole other story. Okay, but why, why not have a working system of democracy 
where we, the people, appoint representatives who call in experts, who talk about the science at hearings, and we come up with the best ways to try to address these problems and then find out what works and then apply those things that work for society instead of saying, oh, we're not going to do that at all. We're going to just let a few rich people try things out. You know, Maybe that'll work, maybe it won't, but it's not up to us. It's up to a few rich people to do it. That's this. And I think it's worth noting. I think it's worth noting too how Forbes characterized this. The heart of this new law: low-income areas designated by each state. Investors will be able to plow recently realized capital gains into projects or companies, slowly erase the tax obligations on a portion of those gains, and more significantly, have the proceeds grow tax-free. There are almost no limits, no limits on what you can put in, how much tax you can avoid. And for most of the country, the type of taxes you can avoid, federal, state, or local, no limits on how long those proceeds compound tax-free and precious few limits on what types of investments you can make. Question, Dave Johnson, for you, is if this money was all going to stay in the pockets of the ultra-rich to begin with, and now at least some portion of it is going to go into improving the lives of people who are, unfortunately, you know, the, the deck is, the cards are stacked against them from the beginning. Is there potentially a silver lining here that is an interim step between where we are now and taxing these people what they ought to be paying? You're describing the removal of democracy from America. You're describing removing local, state, and federal government from making decisions. So if you believe that a few billionaires are a better way to manage these decisions than we the people, then maybe that's a better course of action. When we're presented with these alternatives of, hey, you're not going to be able to get a hold of those resources because they have so much power that they're going to lock them up and keep from paying taxes anyway uh, or let them do these things to keep them from paying taxes. That's the, that's the choice we're presented with as you phrased it. What about, wow. what about we restore the ability of we the people to rule this country, to make decisions and to decide to have our government do things that make our lives better, as this country was intended to be. Never mind capitalism, socialism, or all of this propaganda. This country was intended to be ruled by us, that we get together, we pool our resources, we make decisions, and then government spending, by definition, under such a system, is to make our lives better. What about returning to that or perfecting that, as they say, as we perfect this union? Dave, I think I said this before, but I love your passion as well as your facts. Thank you very much for making time again. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on, Angie. Letting me spout off. Dave Johnson. <laughs> it's always valuable spouting. Dave Johnson, you may know his name from his earlier work as Senior Fellow for the Campaign for America's Future. He continues to blog at Seeing the Forest. And that is a wrap for the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero, and for Brad and Desi, I have worn out my welcome, so they're going to come on back tomorrow. And I hope to see you next time soon. Until then, take really good care, and good luck, world. Good luck, world.